Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. Okay. We've uh, been jumping back into the book of Ephesians together in a very, very short look at the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And what we've been looking at is attitudes, attitudes or, or postures of the heart that we see in the book of Ephesians. We're looking at three in total. Last week, we talked about sit. This week, we're talking about walk. And next week, we'll talk about stand. Three attitudes or postures we take. Sit, walk, stand. This framework was made popular in the 1920s and 1930s from the teaching of an amazing brother in China named Watchman Nee. And he takes it straight out of the book of Ephesians, one of the masterpieces of Paul, where basically we get maybe the deepest exploration of the grace of God in our lives and how it works itself out in our lives. But as we're about to find out today, Paul doesn't just offer us theology and say, this is what God's done, that's it. He calls us to action. How many of you guys know that our faith is an active faith? We're called to move with Jesus. So last week, we looked at sitting, how we sit with Christ. Paul says we're seated in the heavenly places with him. We talked about our nature and how, you know, some of us in the room are doers by nature. We want to do, 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 do something all the time. And you've probably been told before, maybe you've heard this phrase before, like, don't just sit there, do something. Anybody ever been told that before? Well, Paul says we're made for something different. You know, in the first half of Ephesians, basically, Paul says was, don't just do something, sit there. Which that's hard for us sometimes as a bunch of doers. But the reality of the gospel of God's grace is this. Everything that needs to be done has been done for us in Christ. Everything that needs to be done has been finished. Like Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And until we learn to rest first in what Christ has done for us, truly rest in his grace, we can't really walk with him or stand for him. We keep going back to that position of being seated with him in the heavenly places. So I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that message. I know several of you said, I have never seen that before, and that was something I needed to hear. That's great. Uh, I encourage you to do that, because these thoughts have been messing with me for the better part of a year. So, so I know that God wants to speak more into us. Today, we're going to turn our attention away from that first attitude of sitting with Christ in his victory and his grace to the call on our lives to walk with him, to walk And our key text comes from Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 just to get us started as Paul gets real practical. The New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass, he says this, No passage is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. No passage better describes how we together should be walking with Jesus than these verses. You ready to go? You guys ready for the word? All right, let's go. Come on. It says this, verse one, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it's said, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself, gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just a bunch of ideas, but it's things we put in motion in our lives. You call us to walk by faith, not by sight. Sometimes it's hard for us to step out in faith and trust you, but Lord, we know every time we do, we walk in your ways, you're right there with us. And we pray that you would teach us today. Inform us about maybe some of our habits today. Change us today. And we'll give you all the glory together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 85 years ago, in the midst of the Great Depression in our nation, researchers at Harvard began a study that has become the longest-running piece of research in human history on what makes us happy. Do you want to know what makes us happy? 85 years worth of research done by some of the brightest minds in our nation have found this. This is what the conclusions are. You ready? Close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties protect people from life's discontents, help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even our genes. So, what makes us happy as people? No, it's not social status or you know, the respect from our peers. It's not convenient life without problems or even physical health. Healthy, close relationships are what make us happy, is what they found. But if we look at our world and we look at what people work toward with their lives, what they spend themselves to get and run after and chase after, I bet it's a bunch of stuff that doesn't actually end up making us very happy. You know, when we hit hard times too, one of the first things to go is our close relationships, right? Like Any more in our world, if we're going through something, we tend to pull back from people, not run to people. It's kind of backwards, huh? The director of the study said this, the surprising finding 
is that our relationships and how happy we are in those relationships has a powerful influence even on our health. Taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationship is a form of self-care too. You know, it's amazing to me as I read things like this because the very best research done by the brightest minds, it basically leads us straight back to what the Bible has been teaching us for millennia now. And there's a reason as your pastor that I keep standing up here and harping on and harping on about our relational discipleship rhythms. And here's the reason, I want you to flourish. I want you to flourish the way God designed you to flourish. And that happens when we are united together, when we are following Jesus together. That's where the best life comes from. This letter from Paul, it takes a turn as we get into chapter four and beyond, not just the passage we just read, but it keeps going and it is deeply, deeply relational in its content. Everything about what Paul is gonna call us to as we walk with Jesus is something that we do together. He's moving from the theology of what Christ has done for us to now what we get to do together because of that. And it is deeply relational language that saturates the rest of this letter. We shift from this deep underlying truth, the bedrock of God's grace, to the practical. How do we live this out together? How do we build on that foundation that Christ has laid for us? How we act with one another and conduct ourselves moment by moment. And where do we get the strength to do this in God's way? You know, Paul, in this second half of Ephesians, he digs into all kinds of things in our lives that were important to them then and are important now. Patterns of our behavior, even going into like household codes of how we interact with one another at home for husbands and wives, kids, parents. Even in the Roman caste system, he talks to slaves and masters. What we should read from that is God is interested in our behavior and actions and how we relate to one another at every level of our lives, and he wants to see us flourish. So we're not going to cover all that today, because we don't have time to cover all of that. This is a high-level look together. We're going to motor through it a little bit, but we might just camp out on a couple things along the way that I think kind of shout at us in 2023, if that's okay. But we start with this. Walk. Walk. In light of God's incredible grace, Paul says, walk worthy of the calling that we've received. Walk worthy. Over and over in the second half of this letter, we're called to walk. Walk worthy. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Walk in love. Walk as children of the light. He says, be careful how you walk. In many translations, it comes across differently. Like what we just read, it says, you know, live in such a way. But the word in Greek is peripateo. It means to walk or to conduct our lives. And that's what we're drawing on today. Kind of makes sense, you know, using this, uh, this metaphor of walking as to how we live our lives. You know, we hear things like, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk, right? And that's kind of exactly what Paul's getting at here. He's established the principal reality of our faith, that it is by God's grace alone that we are saved through faith. No one can boast. We need to sit down and rest in what he's done. But we're called to first sit, not only sit, right? We're called to first sit, not only sit. Because when we begin to grasp the greatness of what God has done for us and are united with him, 
we begin to move with him. Amen? Watchman Nee says this, it cannot be strongly enough emphasized that all true spiritual experience begins from rest. But it doesn't end there. Everything good that God wants to do in our lives begins with resting in what he's done for us, but that's not the ending point. You know, even in Ephesians 2.10, we read last week, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to move with him. As we're united with him and he's on the move, we begin to move. And this unity together with Christ is the overwhelming focus of Paul in this letter. As he shifts to it, our relationships with one another, how many times does he call us to be united? United as the body. As we just read in this passage, he talked about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's a lot of oneness going on in this passage, right? It speaks to us. Because if you grew up in church, maybe, or you've been around in our culture, you know we like to divide a lot faster than we like to unite. We need to hear what Paul's calling us to today. Remember, as Snodgrass said, this, is, this passage is all about the church together, united in action. We've received his grace, and we're being fitted together into one body. Paul calls us to unity. That's everywhere in this letter. And he describes the way God in his grace, brings that about in us as we go on here. One of the ways that God does this is by giving us gifts for one another, right? We've talked about it quite a lot. We're not going to dig deeply into the gifts of the Spirit today because we spent so much time in 1 Corinthians and Romans recently. But let's just recap this. What Paul's saying here is simple. God's desire for you and for me is that we grow up in our faith. We mature in our faith. And mature believers will seek to understand how God has uniquely created them and given them gifts and seek ways to bless the body of Christ with those gifts. If we are mature believers growing in Christ, we will seek out, God, what have you created me for? What's my part in the body? And we want to put it in motion for the united body of Christ. Walking out God's desires for us that he created us for, saves us to, enables us to walk in. You know, that's not a me thing. That's a we thing, always, in Scripture. Always. It's only possible as we are united together in the body of Christ. We need each other. Last week, as we were talking about, you know, what Christ has done for us, it's, it's kind of easy to misinterpret that in our individualistic culture that we know and live in, as to kind of being an individual reality, what Christ has done for me. Reality is, everything that Paul's writing here isn't just about me, it's about we. It's about us together. Christ did this so that we could be united and walk with him together. These instructions that Paul goes on to give, getting really practical with us, they have like an assumption that our life together is neither flimsy nor flippant. We're deeply committed to one another. That's what Paul expects. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 kind of describes the goal for us, what we move toward when we're united with Christ. And it says this, until we all reach this unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we'll no longer be infants. We'll no longer get tossed back and forth and divide all the time 
with every wind of teaching and the cunning craftiness of people. No, we will be speaking in love to one another, building each other up and deeply committed to one another. If you could sum up the instruction of Paul, he would say this, in a world that's plagued by all kinds of division and divisiveness, we strive for unity in Christ with everything we've got. We prioritize being one body together, loving one another deeply, caring deeply for each other in everything that we do. You know, in chapter two, we kind of skipped over this last week, but we read that even those who are natural enemies, natural enemies and without hope for any reconciliation because of what Christ has done, we are reconciled to each other in this body, in this body. Paul even says he has destroyed on the cross the barriers that tend to divide us as people. How many of you guys know we have a lot of barriers that tend to divide us nowadays? If we read Ephesians chapter 2, what we read is that because of what Christ has done for us, all those, all those walls got to come down. All those walls come down. We need to hear this today. His finished work on the cross continues to be effective today in tearing down the divisions that we want to create as human beings, that we naturally create as human beings. The finished work of Christ is no less effective today at bridging those gaps and bringing reconciliation than it was for them then. All the divisiveness and the factiousness that we see in our culture and our world or along you know, socioeconomic, political, ethnic lines, whatever it is, all of the divisiveness of our world is no match for the uniting power of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if that stuff is coming into the church and bringing disunity, get it out. We have something stronger that unites us. Something stronger. For those led by Jesus and living in his spirit, we are one body. Unity is the massive, overwhelming focus of what Paul calls us to in the rest of this letter. And he gets really, really practical about this. How we walk this out. He starts pushing buttons along the way. So let's, let's move into this as he's contrasting what's normal in their world and ours for us as human beings with the new way we're called by God to walk. I want to read on in 17. We're going to continue here. So he says this. And we're going to go for a, a minute here because there's just so many elements of this. He says, so I tell you this. Let's get practical. And I insist on this in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. How many of you guys know we got people with like really hard hearts? He's saying we're not supposed to be like that. God saved us for something better. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to that former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, and that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, nor any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a, a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Let's stop there. That's a lot of things that cover a lot of ground in our lives, right? I want us to look, rather than going one by one and taking forever and making this a 42-week series, which we could do with this kind of list, uh, I want us to look at a couple things Paul touches on. Remember, it's about the attitude of our hearts, that he's calling us to be renewed in the attitude of our hearts. And I want to kind of sort these into categories, rather than going one by one. Categories, you can say, these are things that we need to bring our hearts back to Jesus and say, inform me in these areas. I, have, I got three categories that we need to be watchful of in our own lives. Because these things that happen in these categories tend to disrupt our unity. And call, Paul's calling us to protect our unity. First one is this. We need to watch what's in our hearts. What's on the inside? What's going on in our hearts? What are we feeling, our thought lives? Paul touches on a number of things that is what's going on in our hearts. He talks about greed. He talks about lust. He talks about bitterness. These are things happening inside of us. And the heart of all these things he warns us about is really a gratification of the self. A gratification of, hey, I feel this. This is what I want. This is what I crave in the natural. It's being ruled by our flesh. How many times does the Bible warn us about that? You know, we, we hear this in our culture, though. It's directly opposite to what our culture preaches. Our culture preaches it like this. If you have a desire for it, it must be good for you, right? You do you, right? We talk about it all the time. Carl Truman calls our, our time in history the rise and triumph of the modern self. We put ourself on the throne as what is the arbiter of what's true for us, even. 
If you have a desire for it, it must be good for you, says our world. And Paul's like, no, that's absolutely the opposite. All, that road is going to lead you to basically all kinds of division between you, but you're called to be different. One thing that sticks out to me in this category of what's going on in our hearts nowadays is, is anger. Anger. He warns us against our anger. And in recent times, I think we've noticed a, a heightened amount of anger in our culture. Right? Anger at each other. Paul says here, there are things that are going to make you angry. You can't just like turn that off and just all of a sudden be a happy person all your days. Like, something's going to happen. It's going to make you angry. That's normal. That's natural. But he says this, in your anger, do not sin. He's making a little distinction here for us. He says, don't let your anger lead you to doing things that are sinful, that you know are wrong. Kind of reminds me of when Cain in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, gives in to his anger. It's the first time we encounter anger that leads to murder in that case. And the Lord warns Cain first about his anger. He says, watch out. I see how angry you are. He says, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door when you're that angry. How many of you guys know that anger can do so much damage so fast? Right? In our anger, our words get away from us. In our anger, we destroy each other. And it feels so good in the moment. Let me be honest, it feels really good in the moment. Set, set the record straight. I'm going to let you know exactly how it is. Paul says this, in your anger, don't sin. In your anger, don't cross those lines. Learn how to have self-control in those moments, he calls us to. As James goes on to say, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Our culture says, use your anger, right? We, we look out at the world around us and all the, the divisiveness, polarization, and anger at one another in what's been called the age of outrage. We're increasingly told to lean into our anger, sometimes even in church circles. I think we need to come back to what the Word says to us on these things. I mean, we can look it up, but I'm pretty sure that use your anger was the emperor from Star Wars, not Jesus, right? You want to follow that guy? I don't know. Good for you. But like, that's the common consensus of our culture right now. Like, yeah, let your anger flow. Shout it out. Shout them down. Whatever it may be. Let's get back to the word and what Jesus teaches us on these things. Amen. We should be able to discern what spirit is behind these impulses that are on the rise in our world and walk in a different way in matters of the heart. So I promise you, those things don't come from Jesus. They don't come from the spirit of God in us, ever. Paul tells us first, keep an eye on what's going on in our hearts. That's category one that he addresses here. Keep an eye on what's happening in your heart how many of you know it doesn't just stay in your heart. It finds its way out of every part of your body, right? Jesus says it like this, and this is going to be category two. He says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the second thing that Paul addresses with us in this passage is what's coming out your mouth, my mouth. He says things like, stop lying to one another. Avoid foolish talk, obscenities. Avoid coarse joking with each other. There's a lot in this passage about what comes out our mouth. Paul's basically saying, you know, the kingdom of God is not a high school locker room. Figure out how to control your tongue. 
Again, you can go on to James if you want to hear more about that. But what is the content of our conversation with one another? Even in the church, honestly, like does some of that anger from outside make its way in the church and we start rehashing things in the church? Huh? We can be honest about these things in church. We're called to watch our words, just like we're called to watch our hearts. You know, Dad said it a while ago when we were studying Timothy. He said that Paul's basic instruction to Timothy is this. If it doesn't build up, you need to shut up. If it's not building up, you need to shut up. It's aggressive. Paul can get aggressive. I think Paul agrees. He says this in 429 in the NIV. It says, do not let unwholesome talk come out your mouth. But only, only what is helpful, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Notice that little caveat there, according to their needs. I like to build people up according to my needs, right? Come on, let's be honest in church. I see you have a problem. Let me fix you real quick. Can we be honest? That's how we like to operate. Paul's saying lovingly caringly, understanding, listening to that person, what's happening in their heart, we speak life into them there. That's what Jesus did for us, right? Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit all who listen. You know, Paul's going to go on and encourage us to let the words of our mouth be a continual song of God's goodness. You know, when we're so deeply seated in what he's done for us, it begins to flow out of our mouths too. We start to talk about what Jesus has done for us. We start to share testimony. That's what happens. Because when our hearts are at rest in his grace, it flows from our lips too. And we build one another up by speaking the truth in love. What's going on in our hearts? What's coming out of our mouths, the final thing Paul addresses is this. What do we do with our bodies? What do we do with our bodies? You know, it always comes back to sex, doesn't it? Just being honest. Read the New Testament. There's a whole lot in there about sex because sex is a very powerful thing. It's a powerful thing because God created it to be powerful. Incredibly powerful. So uniting in the right context and so incredibly destructive in the wrong. John Tyson says this about sex. He says, our culture is schizophrenic when it comes to sex. In one breath, they tell us, yeah, it's casual. Sex is no big deal. Just do what you feel like, whatever. And then in the next breath, sex is everything. It's our motive for living. It defines our lives. It dictates our happiness. But the one thing about every culture on earth is that every culture on earth has expectations and ethics built around sexuality. Some, something because sex is powerful. And we know that abused, all kinds of hell can break loose. So there are ethics out there, even outside of church ethics. There are ethics in our culture about what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to sex, because it's powerful and needs to have those rules. What does Paul call us to? He calls us to self-control, the way the Bible has always been calling us to. Self-control, and he calls us to God's design for sex, for marriage, for family. Because what we do with our body matters. You know, Paul actually is going to go on and talk even more about things we do with our bodies. He's going to push more of our buttons because the word of God does that. Every single one of us. Look, if your buttons are not getting pushed when you read the Bible, then you've like arrived and you're in heaven and you probably died and aren't struggling with anything on earth anymore. 
Like, the word of God pushes my buttons every day. Every single one of us is a work in progress. So when we come to passages like this, slow down. Prohibitive passages, don't rush through them. Let Paul, let Jesus, let the spirit of God push your buttons. Paul's going to go on. He's going to talk about drinking and drunkenness, right? Let God push our buttons. Because what we do with our bodies matters very much to God. It matters very much to God. You know, like if you read the New Testament, Paul spends a good chunk of the New Testament confronting a common heresy in the day that God's really only interested in your spirit. Your body's not going to make it so you can do what you like with your body. This is what people were preaching alongside Paul. And he regularly had to come and speak to these churches again and be like, God doesn't care about your body. But no, he cares very much. That's not true. Your body matters. Your body is meant to be holy unto God. You need to exercise self-control. You know, walking in unity with each other the way that he's encouraging us to. And with Christ, we have to move away from the flippant attitudes of our culture about things with our bodies, about our words, about our hearts, toward the fidelity that we were made for with Jesus. Jesus has expectations for what we do. Have you ever read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Some of it make you scratch your head and be like, that seems like a lot. I love uh, what one theologian said. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is incredible. You know why? Because it crushes the individual. I can't do the things that we're called to in the Sermon on the Mount, but it gives life to the church. What is he saying? We're meant to do this together. We can do all that God has called us to when we do it together, when we have each other's backs, when we build each other up the way we were made for. This isn't about me, it's about we. We need to step into that. Walking in unity with Christ and one another, we move away from the flippancy of our culture toward fidelity to what we're called for, what we're made for. And we follow his lead in the thoughts of our hearts, the words of our mouths, the actions of our bodies. And Jesus wants to continually make change to us. So if you, if you feel like God's working on you in some area, welcome to the club. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's submitting to you can work on me all day, every day, Lord. So let's not pull back when we come to passages like this. Let's dive in. Let's let them shape us. Does anybody have a, a favorite um, older article of clothing in their wardrobe that you can't just bring yourself to get rid of because it just has so many memories. Anybody got something like that, like a shirt? Maybe it's a jacket, something like that. Lara's brother has this shirt. And I, this thing has got to be, it's a t-shirt. It's bright purple. Or it was bright purple at one point. Um, it's got to be 30 years old, okay? It's a Camp Carl shirt. And we always give him a load of crap about his Camp Carl shirt. It's 30 years old and this thing is a disaster. There are holes in it. It's got paint on it. It's just not good. But he is so attached to that shirt. Every time, like, I, I go over his house, he's wearing his camp car shirt. I'm like, dude, how is it even hanging on? <laughs> like, like, honestly, that's some good work back then, I guess. Make a t-shirt that could last that long with that much abuse. David is so attached to his Camp Carl shirt. I bring this up because it reminds me of what Paul's calling us to here. He's saying, you got to put off the old. you got to get rid of it. you got to let it go, comfortable as it may be. Listen to N.T. Wright, sum up Paul's call to us here. He says, now that you are in Christ, you have the responsibility in the power of the Spirit to take off the old lifestyle, the old way of being human, 
like someone stripping off a shabby and worn suit of clothing. It may have become comfortable, he says. You may be used to it and even quite like it. Familiar old clothes are often like that, and brand new ones often feel a bit strange. But if you want to live as a new person, in and for the king, the old suit of clothes has to come off, and the new one has to go on. He's saying, no matter how comfortable it may feel, I mean, you guys know this. If we walk just like anybody outside in our culture, like, you're not going to get pushed back. They're going to do that. You do you. That sounds great. Good for you, man. Good for you. You start going against the grain and allowing the Holy Spirit to make changes and things, you'll probably encounter like, hmm, yeah, we're not really cool with that, or don't rain on my parade. Are you judging me, right? This is the world we live in. But Paul's saying, the old has to come off. The new has to be put on. It doesn't matter how comfortable the old may be. It doesn't matter if that's the one issue that I haven't surrendered to God in. It has to come off, and the new has to come on. Why? Because this is normal in our world, but these things that Paul warns us of, if we let that be the way of it in the church, that's where we get all kinds of divisiveness and disunity. So these things will absolutely destroy your ability to truly relate to one another in Christ. But together, we're called to walk differently. We're called to walk differently, not in greed, but in selfless generosity. Not in lust, but in self-control. Not in bitterness, but in forgiveness. Not in rage, but in kindness. One of the core things that we need to walk the way Jesus has asked us to walk is humility. Amen. Humility. Just as pride is a breeding ground in all of Scripture for all kinds of sin, it all goes back to pride. Well, anytime we're called to walk differently in Jesus, humility is there. Humility is a prerequisite for us. Verse 2 of chapter 4 in the New Living Translation says this, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Making allowances for each other's faults because of our love. I was having several conversations this week about the idea of goodwill. Goodwill. When Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed peace on earth and God's goodwill toward men. If God can have goodwill towards us, even though we are so messed up, we should be able to have goodwill with each other. But goodwill is what's rapidly disappearing in our society, isn't it? We're the soundbite society. Somebody even uses the wrong phrase, and we begin to make assumptions about what they must have been listening to. We begin to make assumptions like, oh, they're being indoctrinated in this worldview or that agenda or whatever because they use some word. We have no goodwill left. The followers of Jesus are called to continually be filling up our reserve of goodwill with one another. You know what that looks like? Somebody comes and says something wrong and we say, maybe they're having a hard day. Maybe they're having a bad day. We don't begin to just distance ourselves, judge them, whatever, disinvite them to Thanksgiving. Come on. We have goodwill in our hearts and say, I don't think they really understood that, but I want to love on them. I want to build that bridge with them. Paul calls us to walk in humility and be gentle with one another because of the love that we've been shown. If we've been shown this incredible grace, how can we not be gracious with each other? Or we could take it the other way and see it like Jesus does. 
you'll be forgiven with the measure that you have forgiven others. That one scares me a little bit. Moving on, you know, unity like we're called to, it's not possible without humility. It's not possible without humility. We're called to swallow our pride and put each other first because that's how Jesus has been with us. In John chapter 15, he says, remain in my love, sit in the grace I've given you. And then he says this, love each other as I've loved you. A new command I give you, love each other as I've loved you. How many of you guys know that walking with Jesus sometimes calls us to go above and beyond in the way that we love one another? Again, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's full of things like when somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one. That's not normal to us. That's not normal. Loving in the way of Jesus may call us to do unusual things. I love what Watchman Nee says. He says this. He shares a story. He says, I knew of an old Japanese Christian woman who was disturbed by a thief who had broken into her house. But in her simple but practical faith in the Lord, she decided to cook that man a meal. And then she offered him her keys. He was so shamed by her action, and God spoke to him. Through her testimony, that man is a brother in Christ today. Look, that's what we call operating in the opposite spirit. If you're on our Follow Together journey and you're up to date, you're going to hear about that this week. It seems totally crazy in our world to love people like that, to care for people like that. Because our world is all about an eye for an eye still, right? You steal from me, I'm going to steal from you. Our world's all about that. But you know, this kind of selfless generosity of spirit, goodwill towards one another, not just in the body, but even with others outside of the body. That is how the followers of Jesus loved the Roman Empire to its knees. That is why you and I can name the name of Jesus today, because they chose to live this out. They listened to the instructions of Paul and the Holy Spirit, and they said, you know what? In Jesus, I'm a new creation. I may not feel like it, but I'm going to step out in what you've asked me to do, Lord, and trust that, Holy Spirit, you got my back, and you're going to provide the power I need to do it. We need to do that again. We need to start stepping out in faith in ways that maybe seem a little unrealistic to us at times. But how do we do this? Like, honestly, though, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read what Paul calls us to, like, how on earth do we walk this out? Where do we find the strength for this? And the reality is this, it's not in you. It's not in me. We can't just try harder or be like, okay, Ryan, do better. It doesn't work like that. When Paul in verse 3 said, make every effort, he doesn't mean just like going back to your own old tricks and trying harder and strength striving or trying to earn it more. Like we said at the beginning, it's not just do something. No, Paul calls us back to sitting with him and what he has done. That's where we find our strength. We're not stepping into our own thing. We're stepping into his thing. And it takes effort for us to let go of our efforts, doesn't it? To stop chasing our own way and say, Jesus, you told me that you live in me. You promised that you put your spirit in me. So I'm going to step out in faith and do your thing, not my thing. See what happens. We need each other to walk this out because it's impossible to do it alone. You're part of the body. You're part of the body. You're not the whole body, but you're part of the body. And all these relational instructions that Paul gives us, they make no sense whatsoever if faith is just a solo ordeal. But that's an invention of our time. 
That would have been totally nonsensical to the people who received this letter. They had no concept of individual personalized faith. None. We need each other. We need to recover being the body so that we can walk out what he's asked us to. And more than anything, we need the spirit of God in us in a fresh way every day. We need his power. Nee says this, the secret is this. In the words of Paul, that the power he has put in us worketh in us mightily in verse uh, 20 of chapter 3. It says this, the Christian secret is his rest in Christ. His power derives from his God-given position. He's first learned to sit and come to rest in a place of God. As a result, his walking is not based on his efforts, but on God's mighty inward working. The key to walking with Christ is to sit every day in what he's done. Every day. It's not about what we can do. It's still all about what he has done. We sit with him in victory, and therefore we can walk with him in the unity of the Spirit every day. That's where our strength comes from. Trusting him and stepping out in faith. One final thought from Watchman Nee, and I like this. He says this, the greatness of his demands, the demands Jesus places on us, the greatness of his demands upon us only shows us how confident he is that the resources he's put within us are fully enough to meet them. God does not command what he will not perform, but we must throw ourselves back on him for the performance. The greatness of all the expectations in scripture that we can't just do on our own only shows us that God is so confident that his spirit in you and me will make us able to do this together. And that's a really wonderful thought for us today. It's not in me, but he lives in me so I can walk it out in faith. Sometimes we just need to pray, God, I don't understand. I know what you're asking me to do in this situation, but it feels totally wrong. But I'm trusting you, Holy Spirit, have your way. Come work your life in me, because I don't have what it takes. That is a fantastic prayer to pray. And from the abundance of his grace, God has already given us everything we need to walk with him every day in unity. So let's yield to his spirit. Let's stay resolved to stay rooted in his love and his grace. That's what unites us. That's what matures us until we all reach unity in the faith. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.